Welcome to What's Working in Washington. I'm Jonathan Aberman. Today, how a seasoned journalist harnesses the power of the podcast. I forbid them from day one to use the term objective, because that's what we always talk about, objective journalism. And I try to make the case it doesn't exist. Every story we ever write or every story we ever broadcast, we decide what story to do. We decide what to lead with. We decide who to quote. We decide what facts to marshal. So that's very subjective. What we want to do is be fair. Journalism, in my opinion, is one of the most important jobs anyone can have in our society. A responsible journalist is an umpire for a community, a source of objective information and a way to know how we're doing. Here in the studio, I have an example of a person who I hold up as an exemplar of what journalism means and who takes on the responsibility of serving all of us in this role. Al Hunt has been a long-term voice for helping us understand Washington, D.C., the government, and its role in the economy. Working in a range of national journalistic institutions, including Bloomberg, The Wall Street Journal, and CNN. He recently launched a new podcast, and I wanted to talk with him a bit about that and also how he sees the role of journalism changing or not in the current political environment and political landscape. Al, thanks for joining us today. Jonathan, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. Tell us about 2020 Politics War Room, your new podcast. What's it about? Well, it's about politics, uh, and the 2020 election will throw in some impeachment. I'm doing it with James Carville, who probably knows as much about politics as anyone I've known, uh, and I think I know a little bit about journalism. Um, I'll tell you how it started, which is sort of interesting. I was having breakfast with a wonderful young man named Peter Greenberger, who used to run Twitter in Washington, now he's a publisher of The Hill. Anyway, he said there's a Toronto company that really would like to do really expand a lot in podcast and you know would you think about it and how would you do it in the middle of that i got a phone call in the middle of that breakfast from james carville who i have talked to every day just about for the last 20 what seven years ever since we had a fight over a story we ran in 1992 and uh mr greenberger said bam that's it the two of you you talk every day just carry that on to a podcast we began it the toronto company sold about a month later But we began to do it, and even though it was really schlocky, the technology was just dreadful. We would have breakdowns, we'd have guests, and then we couldn't get them. But we had fun, and we found out we could get good guests. And then we talked to Jeremiah and Tracy, who know how to do these sorts of things. And we've launched 2020 Politics War Room uh, in November, and we're very excited. I think about you and your background as a journalist, thinking about James Carville and his background as as a political commentator. And... What do you think it says about podcasts as a medium that the two of you are embracing it? Well, first of all, you have to understand we are total Luddites, Jonathan. I mean, Total I mean, Luddites? Well, I see you in the studio right now working with the microphone and technology, so you're belying that. Well, I mean, I've finally gotten that to, to, to that point. James just started emailing a couple months ago. That's how behind we're. But, but <laughs> I can't the, imagine that. I'm the sorry. business is changing. Uh, information is changing. Journalism is changing. And this is really, I think, one of the exciting new mediums there. Someone told me there are 800,000 podcasts in America. I don't know if that's a right figure, but there are lots every day. And I began listening to uh, Pod Save America about a year ago, and I thought, boy, this is interesting. It really is. They have casual conversations the same way you do. Mm. And they talk about interesting topics. Sometimes it's better than other times. And we thought, particularly when it comes to what we think will be the most intense political election and the most citizen-involved and voter-involved political election in my lifetime that based on his many years in the business, in the politics business, and my many years covering it, that, that we might be able to add some value. 
What is it about politics? Because, you know, you've done Meet the Press, you've done CNN, you've done journalism written and so forth, which is fast-paced. What What is it about podcasts that differentiates in your mind? Well, time helps. I mean, when you have whatever it is, 40, 45, 50 minutes, you can have a conversation. Uh, it doesn't it's, – it's the way you do it, Jonathan. It doesn't have to be an interview. Here's question number one. Here's question number seven. Here's the follow-up. Yeah. It is much more – of a conversation. Mr. Carville has very strong opinions. That's uh, true, I, yes. I, I might also. Uh, so it's not like we, uh, we shy from that. But having that conversation can be, I think, very useful. We began uh, weeks ago, and our first conversation was with the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi. And, yeah, we asked her the sorts of questions that she'd be asked and meet the press. But I think it really was uh, more of a uh, conversational uh, whatever it was, 25 or 30 minutes than would have been the case on one of those Sunday shows. So there's the immediacy of the art form. But when I think about journalism generally, and I think about the whole issue of information integrity and putting your yourself in the the mind of the reader, is it really that different? No, I don't, I don't think it is in some ways. In some ways, of course, it's a great deal different. But uh, the way it's not different is what you're trying to do is help the listener or help the viewer or help the reader understand what's happening. And sometimes you do that in more of an analytical opinion way, and sometimes you do that more in the way of straight news. I must say I have – I teach a course on press and politics at the University of Pennsylvania, and I teach one down here. Uh, my alma mater, Wake Forest, has a program in Washington. So I do – and and I forbid them from day one to use the term objective because that's what we always talk about, objective journalism – and I try to make the case it doesn't exist. Every story we ever write or every story we ever broadcast, we decide what story to do. We decide what to lead with. We decide who to quote. We decide what facts to marshal. So that's very subjective. What we want to do is be fair uh, and, uh, you know, be honest. And uh, I, I, I think what we're going to do in our podcast, it's, it's we're not going to pretend that we're balanced, if you will. We're not going to pretend that we're right down the middle. We have a point of view. It's probably a left of center point of view. But we'll get interesting guests, and we'll try to tell people, give people a little more information on what's happening. James, in particular, can talk about, okay, here's the Warren campaign. Here's what I know they're thinking right now. They're probably having a Sunday meeting uh, in the, um, you know, the campaign manager's uh, office, because that's what every campaign does. And here's their considerations. And here's why it matters. And we'll try to analyze some of the substance of the issues. We've done – we've been very critical, for instance, of the, uh, of the Medicare for all single-payer system, both politically and substantively. So it's interesting to me because I struggle with this too mm-hmm. all the time, you know, with my work in economic development and trying to speak for the region or the show. I do believe that there's an objective right and wrong, you know, that, that, that colors truth. Otherwise – yeah. Opinion just exists in a sea of subjectivity. I mean, no how question. Do, how, do you, how do you find that touchstone well, for Well, it was yourself? Daniel Patrick Moynihan who said everyone's entitled to their own opinion, but they're not entitled to their own facts. Uh, and there are facts. Uh, and I think we've learned that lesson painfully in the last three years. Uh, and I think and that's different than my critique of, of calling, of talking about objective journalism. That didn't have to do with whether they're mm-hmm. facts or not. That mm-hmm. had to do with that we make decisions, subjective decisions, all the time. I think in this age with the, you know, with the uh, just uh, proliferation of so many different sources and outlets, the Internet's a great thing. It's on balance, no question, it's done a lot more good than harm. But it's done some harm, too, because it, there are people who just can't spend a lot of time trying to navigate that and look at one or two sites. And sometimes, I mean, I'll give you an example. 
In the last presidential election, there was a story that went out that got more it got more attention for the last week or two in October than almost any other piece uh, online. That was the Pope endorses Donald Trump. That was total. It, it was fake news. And so I think it's a problem. I think we have a real problem. How do you think we can deal with a society? Because it does feel that we're drowning right now in a sea of subjectivity, you know, quote, alternative facts. And What's the answer? Is it the sort of reconstitution of traditional journalism, you know, the emergence of the Washington Post or the Times, or is it citizens like you with with value propositions where people know that you do your best to tell the truth? How does this how do we get through this? I think the only answer is really good, good reporting and good analysis. Uh, I don't know any other answer. I think it's a challenge. It's probably a greater challenge in many ways than it was 25 years ago. Two of the um, uh, of, of the outlets you just you know alluded to, the Washington Post, the New York Times, are grounds for great encouragement. They were considered the old school, the legacy uh, uh, outlets that were uh, you know yesterday, if you will. And my dear friend Joe Abramson wrote a book, and I think when she began that book, she was writing about the Times and the Post and Vice uh, and uh, BuzzFeed, I think, and. The premise going in was that Vice and BuzzFeed are the future and the Times and the Post might be yesterday. By the time she finished the book, uh, it had turned around. And I think uh, in part that's due to, you know, look, everything and anything you do has to do with ownership or, you know, who's doing it. And uh, the Post has been fortunate that a, um, that a billionaire bought it who uh, doesn't interfere with their, um, uh, with their news which is almost the way things were years ago with wealthy families right. owning newspapers. We've, we've come full circle in some ways. I can't leave you without asking a bit about this. You've launched this 2020 podcast, War Room, at a time where we were going to be going through impeachment. We're headed into the election. How, how do you see this all ending? Do you, do you think that we're going to ever return to some sort of normality? Or is the world we're living in now pretty much the world we're going to be living in? I think for the foreseeable future, it's going to be a world – like we're living in. I don't think we're going to have Donald Trump forever. To me, that's a good thing that we're not going to have him forever. But uh, I think this sort of semi-chaos, if you will, polarization, sometimes bitter fights over things that really aren't very big, I think that's going to continue for a while. And I hope that's what we can do with 2020 Politics War Room, that we can at least give a context. Between us, we're really old. Uh, We've had 98 years of experience combined. And that's a disadvantage to some extent in the sense that we're not, uh, we're not with it, as my, as my kid would say. But we also have that context. I think that context is important. We're go- I mean, I, just to give you one example, Jonathan, I, we're going through impeachment. We'll spend a lot of time talking about impeachment in the next month or two. Uh, I covered the House Judiciary Committee in 1974. And history matters. And uh, so I, I, I really hope that we can provide some context. I also hope we can have some fun. But James Carville usually is, it's all, it's never dull. I've had him on uh, other shows in the past, and you're absolutely right, it's never dull. And uh, I, I remember doing an interview with him, and we were going along, and he said, are we done now? And I said, yes, we are. And and we're done with you as well, Alan. Thank you for taking the time today. It was great to have you on the show, and I'm looking forward myself to be an avid listener of 2020 Politics War Room. Apple Podcast, thank you. And now, What the Fed, with technologist John Cofrancesco. Of the many strategic advantages our military has over our adversaries, the most important is our logistics train. The United States military can trust that when it gets in a fight, it can stay in a fight. Whether our members are landing on beaches or deserts, 
or in faraway lands, we have the ability to deliver the goods and services in a sustained manner. The primary mechanism by which we do this is called Military Sealift Command, the non-combatant portion of the Navy. MSC has more than 110 ships, 5,000 civilian merchant mariners, and is in 23 of the 24 time zones at any given time. But the organization is small, and it has a need to be ready at all times and in all places. One of the things that's really important for them is the maintenance of the ships. How can we keep these ships at sea for months and years at a time if necessary? So a group of very smart engineers sat down and they decided to create SAM, the Shipboard Automated Maintenance Module. SAM was a brilliant tool that combined people, process, and technology to allow the Navy to identify problems before they could happen. For example, on pumps that might go out causing the downtime on a ship, they could test the vibration of the machine to determine before it broke that it was going to break. They could fix the pump, thus keeping the ship at sea. SAM was a successful program for years and years and enabled the Navy to stay in fights during Iraq and Afghanistan and in smaller conflicts. But in 2010, the headquarters of MSC made a decision. They were going to move from Washington, D.C. down to Norfolk, Virginia. And this is where the story gets a little ugly. What they didn't think about is how important the people were in SAM. It wasn't just a technology. It was the brilliant engineers at shore here in Washington that maintained those ships. So what happened? As they moved down to Norfolk, many of those older engineers elected to retire. Some of them went into the private sector. And according to a 2018 September IG report, MSC stopped operating SAM. And as it failed to appropriately operate SAM, our ships started to have issues. The lesson learned about this failure is you can't take the people out of the equation. It doesn't matter how good the technology is, how great the initial success was. If you take the people out, the tools don't work. So as you build your own programs, make sure to consider for the people. Make sure to plan for sustained success. That was What the Fed with technologist John Cofrancesco. Our executive producer is Tracy Madigan, and our web writer is B. Aldrich. Music provided by two local bands, The Sunbathers, and my own band, Two Car Living Room. A special shout-out to Marymount University School of Business and Technology. I'm the dean there now, and we are working hard to help our students master business and technology so it doesn't master them. Check us out at marymount.edu. And, of course, thanks to Active Navigation, Sayreforth Shaw, and the Greater Washington Board of Trade who provide the financial support to make this show possible. If you have a story idea, don't forget to tweet us at What's Working DC. I'm Jonathan Aberman. Thanks for joining us.